are in a, um, a sermon series in the book of Nehemiah, uh, and we're, we're seven weeks in now, so we're starting to build up a, a bit of a head of steam. Um, and why are we in the book of Nehemiah? Well, as a church, uh, over the last two years, it's fair to say that we've gone through a lot of change, um, and that's left us in a bit of a rebuilding phase in the life of our church. And in this process, we found ourselves drawn by God to the book of Nehemiah, because it's got so much in there, so much to teach us about what it looks like to faithfully partner with God as he builds his church. So if you missed the introductory sermon um, on chapter one, I'd really recommend that you go to the website, um, halloschurch.org, and the sermon notes um, from uh, that first um, sermon are up there, and that'll be really helpful for the wider context of the book, and it'll help you get more out of the rest of the series. So with that said, let me try and give you a quick recap of where we are at this point. So Chapter 1 of Nehemiah, we're in the year 445 BC, and we're introduced to this guy, Nehemiah. He's from the tribe of Judah, and he's living in Persia with the people from Judah who were taken from Jerusalem when Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 586 BC by the Babylonians. And we know from Nehemiah chapter 1 that he is the cupbearer to the king of Persia at the time, King Artaxerxes. Now, around 85 years before the events described in Nehemiah, in the year 530 BC, Cyrus, who was the king of Persia at that time, he sent a group of the exiles back to Jerusalem so that they could rebuild it. It was their capital city, it was their spiritual home, and he sent them and said, go, go and rebuild it. And they were successful in two major projects. So project number one, they rebuilt the temple. And then project number two, they retaught people the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And then, in around 460 BC, they attempt to rebuild the city walls. This is their third project, and it's a big project. But, as they start building, there's a new king in Persia at the time, Artaxerxes, the same guy that Nehemiah would one day serve. And Artaxerxes, he did not know about the original decree that King Cyrus gave to send the exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. Didn't know any of that backstory. So what he does out of fear is he orders that the walls get torn down and the gates be burned. He doesn't want Jerusalem to become a stronghold. He doesn't want them to become so strong that they would challenge his power. And then we read that Nehemiah's brother, he travels the 900 miles from Jerusalem to Susa, which is where Nehemiah is, and he gives them the news about what's happened. He tells them that the walls have been broken down and that the gates have been burned. And then we read in chapter 1 that Nehemiah weeps for the city. He mourns, he fasts, and then he spends four months praying for the situation. And then he risks his own life by going to King Artaxerxes, and he asks the king if he can do the very same thing that the king had denied 10 years earlier. He asks the king if he can go and rebuild the walls, the very same walls that that very same king had broken down. So it's a, it's a very bold move. It could have cost him his life. But we read that the king treated Nehemiah with incredible kindness. And he sends him back to Jerusalem with everything he needed for this rebuild project. So today we find ourselves in chapter 7. Chapters 1 through 6 tell the remarkable tale of perseverance and, and determination. And despite 
the odds that were stacked against them, Nehemiah and the people, they finish rebuilding the walls and installing the gates in only 52 days, which is a truly remarkable achievement. Now, if you've ever taken on a big challenge, like if you've ever said to yourself, I'm going to run a marathon, or if you've taken on a big project at work, maybe, you'll know of that strange feeling where you work really hard for something, you do all the training or all the work, and then, the, and then it's done. You get to the finish line of the marathon, or you get the project done on time at work, and then you get this weird sense of, like, what next? Like, what am I going to do now? What's the, ne- what's the next challenge going to be? And chapter 7, it documents the collective now what moment of God's people. So they'd celebrated this great achievement. The walls are done. The gates are done. It's been rebuilt. But then the question on everybody's mind is, what next? Let me read for us from the beginning of chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. This is from the Christian Standard Bible which is the the translation that we use here at the Hallows Church. It should come up on the screen. Okay, it says, When the wall had been rebuilt, and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, the singers, and Levites were appointed, then I put my brother Hanani in charge of Jerusalem, along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. I said to them, do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot and let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes. The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it and no houses had been built yet. Then my God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I had found the genealogical records of those who had come back first, and I found the following written in it. These are the people of of the province who went up among the captive exiles deported by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Each of them returned to Jerusalem and Judah to his own town. Father God, I just um, I praise you and thank you so much for this new day. Thank you for this chance to gather together with dear brothers and sisters. Um, and I pray, Lord, um, that you would guide us through this time in the scriptures, God. Thank you so much for the book of Nehemiah and all that we've learned through it so far. And I just pray, Lord, that as we, as we look at uh, what next for the people, I pray that um, this would also... Um, yeah, give us so many things to be pondering, um, both for our own lives and for our own church. And we just ask that your Holy Spirit would, uh, would open our minds and hearts to, um, to the meaning of your word here. In Jesus' name. Amen. So just to say, we, we are going to touch on the rest of the chapter later, um, just to mention that. But we're going to kind of start with the passage that I just read out. So verses 1 to 3. They tell the reader that structurally and organizationally, the rebuild project was complete. The last stone had been placed in the wall. The gates had been hung. And the right people had been put in the right roles in city life. Verse 4, however, 
It reveals that the structures and organizations, sorry, the structure and the organization that they put in place, that was the easy part. We read that the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and no houses had been built yet. So verse 4 gives us an answer to the now what question. The structure and the organization was there. They'd done it in 52 days. But now the harder work of community building begins. See, Nehemiah had expertly led the people in building a safe space for the people. That was what the walls were all about. The city walls provided safety and security for the people on the inside. So they carved out this safe space with all that hard work that they'd done. And now the work of cultivating that fledgling community begins. So let's explore this in, in three different areas. So they created a safe space to grow, point number one. They created a safe space to worship, point number two. And they created a safe space to belong, point number three. So let's look at the first one, a safe space to grow. So the city had been adequately fortified, providing safety from military attacks and dangerous wild animals. And now the people could move back inside the city walls, start building houses, starting families, and cultivating community. We read in verse 4 that Jerusalem was large and spacious, meaning there was enough room for everyone to build homes, plant gardens, and keep their many animals. We're going to find out later in the chapter that they had 6,000 donkeys. So they had to have some space for the donkeys to, to roam around, right? Which they did. They had a spacious place. So the people, they united under Nehemiah's leadership. They're confident that God was with them. And they've created a space where over the coming decades, they could grow together as a community. They had good reason to be excited about the future. They were safe. They had space to spread out, to build homes in which they could raise children. They had room to tend to their animals. The outlook going forward was very, very good. But with that said, the work of cultivating community is a different kind of work to that of building walls and gates. Working with people is a lot more complicated than working with wood and stone. Their progress on the wall and gates had been linear. Every time they placed a stone in the wall, every time they put a plank of wood in a gate, secured in place, it meant they were that little bit closer to finishing. But community life can be frustratingly non-linear because the building blocks of communities are human beings who, as we know, are complicated. As we saw in Nehemiah chapter 5, the same people who would be repopulating Jerusalem are the same people who allowed oppression, slavery, and extortion to run rampant in their communities. If the people needed God to strengthen their hands for the rebuilding of the walls and the gates, then they would need to continue to ask God for strength to rebuild their community. We noted in chapter 5 that sin, by its very nature, makes community so difficult to cultivate. 
By nature, we are proud, and communities are built on humility. By nature, we are self-centered, but communities are built on selflessness. By nature, we are foolish, and communities are built on wisdom. We naturally hold grudges, and communities are built on forgiveness. Naturally, we are tight-fisted, but communities are built on generosity. In light of this, Nehemiah and the people needed God's power for the work of rebuilding their community. They needed that power so much more than they needed it for the rebuilding of the walls. Looking back to chapter 5 again, the people desperately needed a miraculous work of heart regeneration if they were going to build the kind of community they longed to be part of. See, from where we stand in history, we know that what they longed for was accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus sacrificed himself, paying the penalty for our sins, and then he rose again, destroying death. Because of this, Jesus says that we can be born again with soft hearts that are responsive to the Holy Spirit, who Jesus promises to give to his followers. This means that for Christians, though the work of cultivating community is still a challenge, it's more achievable than it was for people in Nehemiah's day, who had God's law and the promises, but they were waiting for a day when God would do a regenerating work in their hearts. Just as the walls and the gates of Jerusalem provided the conditions for the people to build their community, the gospel, the good news of all that Jesus did to rescue and restore us to himself, provides the conditions for the church to grow. Here at the Hallows Church, we want to make the, we want to make the gospel the soil in which we grow in God's together. I read this week that cultivating church community is much more like planting trees than it is about building walls. You see, trees, especially fruit trees, are often used in the Bible as a picture of how we grow, both individually and as, a, and as God's people. If you've ever been to a vineyard or an orchard and you talk to the people that set up that orchard or vineyard, they often tell you that they planted the, they planted the, uh, the vines and the trees like decades ago. And when they did plant them, they weren't expecting a harvest for at least 10 years or more. As the Hallows Church, through the grace of God, we have this beautiful building, we have stable finances, we have a functioning organizational structure, leaders appointed in the right positions, and we are being held accountable by trusted partners in the gospel. As wonderful and good as all that is, all that structure and organization, just like Nehemiah and the people, the work of cultivating community here at the Hallows Church has only just begun. 
Just like growing an orchard or a vineyard, this work will take decades. As a church, we want to plant ourselves into the fertile, rich soil of the gospel. We want our roots to go down and connect to Jesus, just like he calls us to do in John 15, verse 4. The organic, long-term, fruit-producing growth only comes through a meaningful connection with Jesus. Because as he says in the very next verse, John 15, 5, he says we can do nothing without him. So our desire is to be a church filled with fruitful people who are deeply connected to Jesus and enjoying the fruit that he produces in one another's lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Primarily, this is a list of fruits which benefit others, that build others up, that makes living in community with people possible. If a church is filled with individuals that are brimming with these fruits, then we will see our community grow in all the ways we long for. Okay, point number two, a safe space to worship. So as I mentioned earlier, in verses one to three, Nehemiah records that Jerusalem is structurally and organizationally sound, the rebuild project is complete, Nehemiah has placed the right people in the right roles for the leadership and protection of the city, and then he gives us another detail. He says that he appointed the singers and the Levites. Now, these, these, the job of these two groups was to lead God's people in worship together with the priests. So the Levites, they were descendants of Levi, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, who went on to father the 12 tribes of Israel. The Levites had a special role in the Israelite community because they assisted the priests in, the, in making sacrifices, guarding the sanctuary, and teaching the people. The singers led the people in sung worship, which, like in churches today, played a big role in the worship of the communities described in the Old Testament. Nehemiah's careful recording of this appointment of the singers and Levites reminds us that Jerusalem was established first by King David and then later by his son Solomon as, the cent- as literally the center of spiritual life for the people of God. It was the place where people would go to engage in the rites of purification, where they would go to be comforted that God had forgiven their sins through the sacrifices made on their behalf. It, it was where they went to sing God's praises and listen to his word read out and preached. Nehemiah's rebuild project gave the people a a space to grow, but also a space to worship. In my missional community, one of the midweek small groups that we have um, here at the Hallows Church, we've been going through the Psalms together, which has been a really beautiful and really great time. Uh, We've just been taking it in turns to lead each other uh, through a psalm and quickly kind of dive into it a little bit. Uh, And the Psalms are the songbook of Israel. 
And the language and the emotion displayed in these songs, which we call psalms, they give us a sense of the passion with which our ancestors in the faith worshipped God. For Christians, our corporate worship does look different to that of ancient Israel in some ways. Specifically, we don't have to travel. We don't have to go where we don't have to go to where God is to worship. God promises that when two or more are gathered, that he will be with them. Matthew 18:20. So, old covenant they went to God. New covenant when we gather, God comes to us. If in the old covenant, oh, sorry. <laughs> Literally just read that bit out, sorry. We no longer need sacrifices. That's the next thing that's different about our worship and and theirs. We no longer need to make sacrifices because Jesus sacrificed himself once for all, Hebrews 10 verse 10. But in other ways, our corporate worship does look the same. We still sing for joy in the Lord, Psalm 95 verse 1, and we still read God's word publicly and make space for preaching. Here at the Hallows, we want to be a growing community and a worshipping community. It could be argued that you can't have the one without the other. As we grow, we develop a deeper passion and desire to worship. And when we worship passionately, that helps us grow. Just like growth in God starts by remaining in Christ... So, joyful, exuberant worship flows out of a life that is saturated with Jesus. Jesus is both the source of our praises and he he is the subject of our praises. As our roots go down deeper into Christ, not only will we produce much fruit, but we will also be men and women who overflow with joyful worship turning back to God in praise all the things he has given us in his son. Okay, lastly then, point three, a safe space to belong. So we've considered how Nehemiah's hard work with the people, it carved out a space to to grow and a space to worship, and now we think about how that space was created to belong. In verse 5, we read that Nehemiah, he has a thought from God, maybe as he was praying or spending time with God. Now, a little side note here. We should pause and stop on this detail for a second. We know from chapters 1 through 7 that Nehemiah was a man who walked closely with God. And because of that closeness, his ears were attuned to God's voice. You see, the the God that we worship is personal. The language we've been thinking about, about remaining in Jesus, it's such intimate language. We're not just called to worship God publicly and corporately. We're also called to worship God individually and privately. I cannot stress how important your inner life with Jesus is to every 
other area of your life. If you neglect your own personal relationship with Christ, if all you have is this time, these Sunday meetings, as great as they are, you're on, you're on borrowed time. Because it's impossible to bear fruit in the long run without cultivating your own personal relationship with Christ. Nehemiah knew that his relationship with God was the cornerstone on which the rest of his life was built. In this series, we've noted on many occasions that Nehemiah's relationship with God was the source of his peace, his faith, his determination, his courage, his boldness, and his hope. If we are going to be men and women who know the still small voice of God like Nehemiah did, then we have to commit ourselves to the daily rhythms that bring us into the embrace of Jesus. If you're someone who finds it hard to hug people, can I urge you to make an exception? Can I urge you to make an exception and learn how to embrace Jesus? Jesus says, remain in me. He is the vine. We are the branches. We need to bond ourselves to Christ. Press into him. Know that embrace. If we stop short of this, then we stop short of what Jesus is inviting us into. Nehemiah heard the voice of God because he had cultivated a deep and personal relationship with God. If we're going to be a church with ears finely, finely tuned to the still small voice of God, we must be a church that is daily taking Jesus up on his offer to deeply connect with him. Okay, back to verse 5. So God gives Nehemiah this idea. He says, get everyone together and register the people according to their lineage. Then we read that Nehemiah found the genealogical record of who came back first. This is the same genealogical record that is read out in Ezra chapter 2. As I've noted a few times in the series, Ezra and Nehemiah are best read as one continuous volume documenting the return of the exiles to rebuild Jerusalem. So the genealogical record that Nehemiah reads, it was a pre-existing document. And the fact that he says that he found it, that seems to suggest that he might have had to go rummaging around to look for it. Maybe it was like an important bill, you know, and you know you've opened a letter and it's got an important bill, but you've kind of put it in with a bunch of other paperwork. He's kind of rummaging around, like trying to find it, and then he does find it. And then he uses it to help the people to identify which tribe they are from and who their ancestors are. This is a long list of hard-to-pronounce names, which is why I didn't give chapter 7 to someone to read. But let's quickly move through this list and just note a few things. should come up on the screen. So verse Verses 6 and 7, it tees up the list. It reminds the reader that the exiles were originally deported by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And then it lists the leaders 
from Zerubbabel through to Barna, they, they were the leaders of the people when they went back to Jerusalem. Then you've got uh, verses 8 to 38, which lists all the Israelite men. And then 49, sorry, 42 sorry, to 49 uh, lists the priests. Um, I think I might have had a bit of a nightmare with the numbers here. Sorry about that. Verses 43 to 45 list the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers. 46 to 60 lists the temple servants and Solomon's servants. And then in, in verses 61 to 65, we read about some who couldn't find their genealogy and so were barred from the priesthood as a result. And then verses 66 to 69, it's kind of like a summary. It gives us the total number of exiles who returned, plus all the animals, including the, uh, the comically high number of donkeys. There was, there was one donkey for every seven um, Israelites, so they, they must have really loved. I think donkeys were like dogs. Like You know how everyone has a dog in Seattle? I think it was that like everyone had a donkey um, back then. And then you've got the final verses, 70 to 73, which is all about how much they donated into the temple treasury. So why was this genealogical registration important? Sometimes when we come to these passages in our Bibles, we can be tempted to just kind of flick over them. But it's here for a really important reason. You see, in the Old Testament, in God's wisdom, he chose Abraham to be a father of a nation. And that nation, later known as Israel, named after Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, they enjoyed the privilege of being God's chosen people, and they were blessed by God so that they could go and be a blessing to the rest of the surrounding nations. So if you were born in Israel back then, you could trace your lineage back to Abraham, the father of faith. If you belonged to Israel, you knew that you were God's special possession, carrying his blessings so that you could go out into all the earth and share the goodness and blessing of God with the world. So with this in mind, it's no wonder that the Old Testament is so full of genealogies. People want to record and preserve the fact that they belonged through birth to the nation of Israel. And this also explains why God gave Nehemiah this idea in the first place to register the people. We must remember that the people had had a, a horrendous time. Over the last 150 years, they'd been absolutely battered by their enemies. They'd been taken into exile. They'd been completely obliterated. They'd been exiled far from their homelands under harsh rule so all this chaos and, up and upheaval, it shouldn't surprise us that the people are a little bit disorientated. The fact that Nehemiah had to go looking for the genealogical records proves that the people were out of touch with their heritage. So this is a really loving move by Nehemiah. It's a loving move prompted by God because God wants people to know definitively that they belong to him. This registration would have provided a connection to the past and a sense of belonging that the new inhabitants of Jerusalem, they sorely needed. So this is like a really joyous moment. As Nehemiah was reading this stuff out, people would have been celebrating as their names were read out. 
But there's one exception to this joy. Sadly, we read in verses 64 and 65 that a number of the people, they couldn't prove that they were from Israel. So they were disqualified from the priesthood and told not to eat of the most holy things until there was a priest who could consult the Urim and Thummim, sacred objects that the priest used, described in Exodus 28:30. Now, you could, you could, we could spend a whole sermon just talking on those two verses. We're, we're not going to do that. Um, but I think it just proves here just how important it was for the people to be connected to their, their lineage and their heritage. So like the people in Nehemiah's care, God wants every Christian to know, deep down, that they, that they belong to him. Here's a few ways of how we can be certain that, that we belong. Firstly, like Nehemiah and the people, we can call ourselves descendants of Abraham. I used to go to a summer camp, and everyone used to stand up on the chairs after they'd eaten their food, and we sang this song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. And we'd sing it for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. Everyone getting more, louder and louder and louder. It's good times. So, yeah, just like Nehemiah and the people, we can call ourselves descendants of Abraham through faith. Galatians 3, 7 says, You know that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. So in the gospel, Gentiles like me, through faith, can come into the family of faith that God started through Abraham, enjoying the blessing of God so that we could be a blessing. Exactly the same. Blessed to be a blessing. Secondly, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15 says this. For all those led by God, by God's Spirit, are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul goes on to describe how we're co-heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. As believers, we can know that we belong to God because he has given us his Holy Spirit, who applies the truth that we are God's children to our hearts every day. And thirdly, Paul writes in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ so if you're a believer and you've been baptized, it's a key moment that helps the Christian remember that though they used to belong to the world, now, through faith, through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, they now belong to Christ. Baptism is a dramatic outward reenactment of what has happened in the heart of every Christian who has died to their old life and been risen to new life in Christ. If you are a believer but you haven't yet been baptized, can I gently urge you to consider it? I'd be happy to talk with you about it 
if you'd like that. Lastly, not only do we belong to God, there's a sense in which in Scripture we belong to one another. And I think this is something that as a church going forward, this is, this is going to be so key for us as we, as we belong to one another here on Sundays, as we belong to one another as we share meals, like we're going to do later. Um, please do um, join us for the meal um, downstairs after the service if, you, um, if you're free to do so. Um, we want to belong to one another in missional communities, which as I mentioned earlier, there um, are they're midweek um, small groups and they're just such a great expression of like the kind of all of the day-to-day stuff that we don't get to um, partake in here. Uh, and it's honestly, I think, where we really do um, grow the most in church life. Um, and it's also where we feel like, like we most belong. It's, it's sometimes hard. You come in on Sunday, you've had, you've had like everything going on in the week. You maybe get like a five-minute chat with someone over coffee and then every, everybody kind of heads out for the rest of the day. And it's, it's hard to feel like you belong sometimes on Sundays. But if you're there midweek, you really do feel like you're part of a family. Um, the, um, the last uh, MC uh, missional community meeting that I was a part of, both my wife and I just left feeling so full, um, so full of life and joy and, and, and just such a sense of belonging to that group. It's just so great. Like we're, you know, God's brought, brought us into such a sweet spot, and I'm so, so thankful for it. Um, interestingly, I, I also caught up with another person um, in RMC, and he, he said pretty much exactly the same thing. So. Um, and then we, then we also belong to one another in, in, in more of an accountability, smaller setting. So finding people that you can get alongside and do life with, um, who can speak into one another's lives and, and belong to one another in that sense. Um, because those are, the, those are kind of the, the appropriate relationships where we go deep. Sometimes missional communities, not necessarily the, the chance to go super deep, but maybe with one or two trusted friends over coffee or over breakfast, it's a great opportunity to go deep, to say, I'm really, really struggling in this area. I'm finding it really hard to have joy right now. I'm finding it really hard to be peaceful right now. I just feel like I'm worrying all the time. And then we can speak into one another's lives, speak, speak the gospel truth um, to one another and pray with one another in those settings. So those are the kind of the three main ways that we can belong here, the Hallows Church, Sundays, missional communities, and then um, in what we've called in the past DNAs, discipleship, (laughs) accountability, there we go. We haven't haven't talked about DNAs for a while, but yeah, that smaller context, accountability, support, relationships, and that is something that we're going to be leaning into a little bit more um, over the next year as well as a church. So, with all that said here, the Hallows Church, we long to cultivate a fruitful community of God that is committed to growing, worshipping, and belonging as a family of faith. So would you pray with me to that end? God, I thank you so much for this, this text. Um, thank you so much for all it teaches us about cultivating community. Uh, we know, Lord, that cultivating community is tough. It's hard because... We're dealing with people, and every single person um, has their, um, their sins to deal with, their own um, baggage from the past to deal with, all this stuff that makes it, it can make it so hard for us to cultivate a uh, genuine community. But thank you that that is the miraculous thing about Christian community, is that sometimes you look around and you think there's absolutely no way that um, we would normally be able to have the depth of relationship we have. It's literally a miracle from God that the Holy Spirit has come and, and enmeshed um, 
It meshed hearts together in a way that could never be done on a human level. So I thank you so much for that, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that as we go forward as a church, that we would, we would cultivate a, a safe space um, to grow, um, a safe space to worship you together, and a safe space to belong. And I pray that you do all that in your power. Um, you'd humble us and show us that we can't do any of it on our own, but we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh,